welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 46, Roman Conclusions, Part 2. Last time, by way of a summary of the history of the Theatre of Rome, I presented the first half of my personal top ten of Roman theatre. Those five included playwright Terence, master of Latin and creator with his pals of subtle domestic comedies. Then Plautus, whose characters and plots can be traced through to stories being told in theatres, at the movies and on television today. Next, I suggested that the inheritance the Romans take from the Greeks is another element of Roman theatre of major significance, and something that it's very difficult for scholars to trace precisely, but is undeniable and an area still rich for future research. To balance this, I also included the Roman influence on the future, something that is perhaps not as obvious as the direct Greek inheritance, but, I would argue, should not be ignored. I closed the episode with my number five, the Roman stages, from the wooden platform to permanent purpose-built theatres, via the Marketplace Theatre, the Temporary Theatre and the reconstruction of Greek amphitheatres. Just as a reminder, this is my personal choice and one that has many debatable points, and I would readily agree that it's not definitive. But hopefully it will serve as a summary of the history that we have worked through in the last 20 podcast episodes. So, without further ado, here we are halfway through my top 10 of Roman theatre. And we get to number 5, music. I have to confess here and say that I don't think I've emphasised the importance of music enough in all the episodes so far, so this is my attempt to put that right. And before saying something specific about music in the theatre, I should note that with the inclusion of music, theatre was only reflecting the prevalence of music in Roman life. No celebration, festival, religious service, sacrifice, funeral, games or, well, any social event was complete without music being included in some way. We get this information from descriptions, pottery paintings and mosaic decorations, where musical instruments and musicians are often prominent. Hymns were specially commissioned for games by the organisers and sung by choirs whose members were both adults and children. In the games of 17 CE, the hymn was commissioned by the Emperor Augustus himself and written by Horace, so we have to assume that it held a very prominent position within the games. It's interesting to note how sport and art lived side by side in Rome and were equally appreciated. Music held this special place since the earliest times in the city, where it seems likely that the Etruscans were again the early influence. The Romans then inherited the Greek view that music was an expression of the orderliness of the universe and pleasing to the gods. As the empire developed, music became associated with knowledge and particularly mathematics and geometry. The instruments available to Romans were forms of woodwind and stringed instruments, percussion and some brass. It's not certain that the Romans used musical scores as such, although some argue that there must have been some method of musical notation, and this probably followed the Greek method, and instruments, we think, would have been tuned in a similar way to their Greek predecessors. Musical scores for theatre have also not survived, so it's difficult to talk about what the music would have sounded like, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't an important element of the performance. The bottom line is that it seems highly unlikely that any performance of any type of Roman theatre would have been presented without music. Even as we discuss the plays, ignoring mime and pantomime for the moment, we have to include the mention of music. Plautus's plays include singing and dancing in the scripts, think of the closing wedding celebration scenes at the end of several plays, and the comic dancing that we saw in Cassina. Terence writes whole sections in a poetic form that was probably sung and accompanied by music. 
and Seneca has a choral song marking the spaces between the acts of his plays. So not so much directly part of the play, but still we can argue integral. Descriptions by commentators of performances usually mention musicians and the suggestion is that they were either on stage or very close to it. Musicians weren't hidden behind or beneath the stage, as far as we can tell. The music was more likely provided by forms of pipes, horns, drums and cymbals, so we can imagine perhaps a sound that was percussive rather than melodic. Music was used partly for mood setting and to support and heighten moments of drama and comedy, but also to entertain in breaks in the performance. To set the record straight, it seems safe to say that music was not only always present, but absolutely integral to the Roman performance. And for mime and pantomime, music was equally integral, forming a definitive part of the performance. From a fragment of a script at the Oxyrhynchus find that I described a couple of episodes ago, we may have notation showing musical moments, but this is uncertain. Fortunately, the question of the degree to which music was used in the performance is in no doubt, because there are descriptions that make it clear that music and singing accompanied the mime artist in both forms, and in pantomime particularly, it must have played a large part in helping the artist to show the action that he was describing in movement. Modern theatre, of course, also includes the use of music not just when we are watching something called a musical, but it is still more often seen as secondary to the performance action. My impression is that nothing we currently have integrates music in quite the way it was done in Rome, and certainly not in a very popular format. So music in the Roman theatre remains quite ephemeral and difficult to grasp, and perhaps that's just as it should be. The related arts of mime and pantomime make it into my list at number four. This is partly because this was an area I knew least about prior to researching, and so was one of the big surprises for me but also because the forms dominate in the popular theatre for centuries, from the imperial period to the Byzantine Empire. I went into mime and pantomime thinking I would not find too much, but actually discovered some wonderful descriptions by contemporary and near-contemporary writers, which I felt really breathed some life into the form. I was especially pleased to have found the novelised description that I closed the pantomime episode with. This piece, which of course we must treat with a bit of caution as it is fiction, describes the lavish grandeur of the pantomime in the later period and I think really gives a sense of what a performance was like. The form may seem rather stilted to us and not a satisfying form of narrative drama, but we can admire its style of lavish presentation and the skills of the craftsman who put such a production together. I was also struck by the sensuality of the scene depicted. Both the male and female actors were described in very physical and sexual ways, and I like to think that this captures part of what pantomime meant to the Roman audience, and one of the reasons why its demise came in the Christian period, and we'll hear more about that in a moment. Mime and pantomime tried to appeal to all the senses, and, we can be sure, played to an audience to amuse, excite, and yes, to appeal to the voyeuristic tendencies that the Romans had. The domination of these forms in the imperial period is another of the startling facts of Roman theatre. They provide a form of very sensory entertainment that did not, I would suggest, demand a large degree of intellectual engagement. Mime was incredibly diverse, and with more information we would surely be dividing it into sub-genres to our heart's content. The mime show could be serious, comic, mythic, historic, religious or satiric, just to suggest a few topics. It seems that there was no subject or event that could not be represented, praised or criticised by the mime artist. 
Its Big Brother pantomime could both be taken as a form of pure enjoyment, and the reports of ladies overcome by the sensuality of the performers suggest that for many, that was exactly what they got from it. However, pantomime is also spoken of in terms of a high art, where nuance and restraint were appreciated by those versed in its traditions, codes and meanings. I don't know if we can go as far as to say that pantomime fell into two categories, highbrow and lowbrow, or if the two were somehow merged into one and an audience member could take what they liked from it. But whatever the case, it and mime deserve their place for popularity amongst generations of Romans, if nothing else. Because of its dominance in the imperial period and the enthusiastic support it received from many emperors, the story of mime and pantomime becomes entwined with the history of the emperors themselves. Their stories are quite well known now, but it was fun to bring some of their extravagances, peculiarities and, let's face it, dangers into the story. Caligula and Nero take pride of place in that category, but their extremes are not the whole story by any means. Mime and pantomime became the art they were, in part, because emperors lavished their wealth on them. That always had a dual motive, partly being for their own pleasures, but also as a means of pleasing the people, providing them with entertainment, and therefore keeping a lid on potential unrest in the city. Not that that always worked. Some riots in the early decades of the Christian era are explicitly linked to the rival supporters of pantomime artists. Now, I think we can assume that there were other underlying reasons for those riots, and perhaps it was just that people with similar grievances happened to gravitate to particular performers. We don't have such extreme examples in our time, but rivalries between fans of sports teams are well known, and closer to our subject, the world of Italian opera has seen fights break out in audiences over artistic differences. A long, hot summer can still lead to an increase in rioting in cities, as the effects of lack of sleep and frayed tempers have to find an outlet. Rome, and then Constantinople, were both cities that had long histories of restless youths forming gangs and causing sporadic trouble, and it is a manifestation of that which we see linked to pantomime on this occasion. It's an odd coda to a history of an art that could be very refined, but which also appealed on an emotional and sensual level. Like so much in ancient Rome, it now seems like a distinctly Roman mix. Whatever the relative merits of the preceding top seven, I don't have any doubts about the final three. They qualify as the most surprising, interesting and, in the case of number one, the most downright fantastic individual thing that I found in my travels through Roman theatre. Sitting at number three are the female characters, both seen and unseen. Of course, we know that in the plays women were not allowed to perform, and the female roles that were written did not play a part in a transformation of Roman society for women, but they do play a significant part in the plays themselves, and on occasion drive and even manipulate the action. Some, like Cassina, are never seen, but their influence pervades the play. Men, for all their strengths and command in society, are driven by their desires for these women, and their weaknesses are emphasised by that. The constraints of the female characters make the way that they're used and the subtleties of what their roles can and can't fulfil an interesting study in itself. Even when confined to offstage action like birth scenes or standing silently to the side of the action, listening in and reacting, they are a presence in the plays. A careful reading of the scripts shows that the presence of women on stage happens a lot more than we might otherwise think. The women are often the hidden listener behind the pillar or in the alcove. 
On occasion, they're only detected by their reaction to the scene and used to add emotion and to balance comedy or the scheming and duplicity of the men. Woman, why are you wringing your hands? Why the tears? are familiar questions in Roman comedy aimed at the silent observer of the action. But we cannot avoid the fact that their role is universally a subservient one to men for whom they are little more than a possession. Since the rediscovery of Roman drama, the exact position of women in the plays has been much debated, and every translator of Latin has had to struggle with exactly what role the females were playing and what language to use to describe them. Through every age, particularly under the influence of Christian morality, this has been a problem and euphemism for the nature of their relationship to the men has been applied, each with its own cultural baggage for their period. Prostitute, in the modern sense, does not go close to covering it, only describing part of their function, and cruder terminology for that profession is generally avoided in translations, perhaps because of a realisation that it's not sex workers walking the streets that we see in the plays, but the more idealised view of that role. Courtesan is another popular descriptive option, with its implications of something less seedy and more beneficial to the woman, but this shies away from the very transactional nature of the relationship in most cases. In the plays, the women range from slaves to free women, and from those selling their services exclusively to one master, to those for hire, pimped by anything from a slave owner to their own mother. So the exact nature of their role has had some subtlety about it, and it's a subtlety that is further complicated by the way other characters refer to them. A woman can be called by different names to describe her role, depending on how other characters view her position. For example, the young man will refer to the woman they have or aspire to possess as Amici, a term that implies a romantic bond and removes the emphasis on the financial nature of their arrangements. Usurped wives refer to the same woman as Meritrix or Scortum, both rather more insulting terms to the Latin ear. And to take a more complex example, in the Menachmus brothers, when Menachmus of Epidamnus refers to Erotium, while speaking to his wife, he uses the cruder term, emphasising the insult to his wife as he flaunts his mistress to her. All of which would have added depth of understanding for a good part of the Roman audience, however difficult the subtleties may be for us to pick up. Getting to an understanding of just this sort of detail is what I've been striving for since the podcast started, and it's both satisfying to have been able to get a better understanding of the role of women in this respect, and frustrating not to be able to say something more definitive. But it is rightly an area of increasing study in recent years, so we can hope for a better understanding to emerge in the future. As number two, I have Seneca. Now this is because I had no knowledge of Seneca besides being aware that he wrote dark tragedies that were probably not performed but read or given just a very low-key staging in private residences. He was, I thought, not that interesting in the story of Roman theatre. But then, through reading the plays and learning his life story, I realised that I was very wrong about this. Not because I thought his plays themselves had been under-regarded for so long. When I read the plays, I could only agree with every commentary I saw that they are indeed dark and full of too much declamatory poetry. Some of Seneca's poetry is striking, even beautiful, but how much stronger it would have been if much had been pared back and toned down. There's no doubt that the poetry is an important part of what is good about Seneca. For example, when I think of the passage describing the death of Hippolytus, I put it up there with the journey of the beacons in Agamemnon, or the raving of the mad women on the mountain in the Bacchae. 
The description of his body being torn apart as he is dragged from his chariot is quite breathtaking. And it reminds us that the spoken description of a key event was a significant part of ancient drama from the earliest times. For all that the Romans could present plays with lavish props, casts of extras and sets, drama was still, in many respects, theatre of the imagination rather than of presentation or action. And Seneca continues that tradition more than any other Roman writer. His work, in my opinion, is all the better for it. The stories he tells are a return to the themes he saw in Greek drama, taking the Roman theatre out of the domestic sphere and back into the lives of kings, witches and gods. Does it matter if his plays were never fully performed in the great theatres of the day? That they may have been conceived as pieces to be read rather than performed? That was a concern, but I found I worried less about that the more I read. I started to think of these plays in terms of audio dramas and looked more carefully at the way the descriptive passages worked. Take away the worry about how these would have been presented on stage. Take the Greek view that the power of the imagination will provide a much more powerful image to the observer than any physical representation could, and I think we do see what Seneca thought he could achieve. But we also have to recognise that he was a man caught in his time. Not only did I find the plays interesting, but his life story and association with Caligula and Nero presented a way into understanding his plays better. Living in the court circle of these two mad and bad emperors, we can maybe exclude Claudius from that list, must have been such a tightrope that the fear and tension that those in the orbit of power lived in is almost unimaginable. So yes, Medea throwing her children from the balcony, or the sight of the shattered body of Hippolytus, would be difficult to watch, and we can say that Medea and Phaedra lack realism, subtlety, psychological truth and much else. But these things were never the intention. In his plays, Seneca cast off all the thoughtfulness of his philosophy, and the restraint of the Stoic, and let rip with the base emotions, raw truths about human nature, and found something that reaches back to the essence of Greek tragedy when that, in turn, gets echoed and reflected centuries later in Shakespeare, Marlowe, Johnson and others, I think Seneca's place is secured and we cannot ignore him. So, we get to my choice for number one and, without a single dramatic pause, it is the Theatre of Pompeii. Telling the story of the creation of this theatre was a joy, full of astounding facts and great characters, and marking the period where the role of theatre in the city becomes a little clearer. The building of the theatre is a small part of one of the great stories of the Roman transformation from Republic to Empire. The rise of Pompey, his rivalry with Julius Caesar and others, his eventual fall in the civil war that leads to the dictatorship of Caesar, the first emperor in all but name, is a story that rises vividly from the past thanks to the Roman writers who recorded these events. The story of the construction of his theatre was a revelation to me trying to describe the audacity of Pompey in getting that theatre built without letting on to its true purpose was an enjoyable challenge. I'm not sure I believe that the Romans didn't know what he was really doing. I think it's far more likely that they saw what was being built and turned a blind eye to it, playing along with his fiction. And I think they did that because he was such a powerful figure at the time that he could pretty much get away with whatever he wanted to do but he would still have needed their tacit support and even the complicity of many of the leading citizens. And that speaks to there being a desire for a permanent theatre by many, even if they could not be seen to endorse it enthusiastically. 
The theatre of Pompey was all about self-promotion, something the Romans were very good at. And Pompey had the support, the popularity and the cash to pull it off. But he had to be cautious. You'll probably remember that Pompey built the shrine to Venus in the upper level of the theatre and claimed that the tiered seating area were the steps to the shrine. I love the idea that he brazenly stood up and made this claim while all around could see this was a theatre and yet nobody said a word. The audacity and display of personal power is astounding. And there is so much more to this building. The gardens, the cooling arches, the civic space, the rooms filled with artistic treasures both created in Rome and looted from countries and regions brought under the Roman heel. That, in recent years, was mostly Pompey's work, and he was not going to let anybody forget it. It was born from slaughter on the battlefield and subjugation and impoverishment of other cultures. But to the benefit of Romans, all of this provided a cultural park that has rarely, if ever, been surpassed if we are to believe the accounts. It was built for the glory of Pompey, one of the most brutal army commanders who had thousands of deaths and who knows how many enslaved people to his name. But it was undoubtedly one of the most impressive artistic and architectural projects in the city, where there was plenty of stiff competition for such accolades. We cannot, of course, ignore its afterlife as the scene of Julius Caesar's murder. But this and the building are not what we should truly celebrate. For the first time, theatrical performances in Rome had a home where it could form, adapt and flourish, as it should, and in a way that had been curtailed by its temporary nature in the past. That is the real grandeur and success of the Theatre of Pompey. And if it was possible to travel back to ancient Rome, and I only had one chance, I would make sure my time was spent wandering this complex and then watching a show beneath the Shrine to Venus and, no doubt, marvelling at the opulence of the theatre. Hopefully I would enjoy the show, but I think the other distractions might be rather overwhelming. The theatre building survived for about 500 years and was used as a theatre past the fall of Rome into the period of dominance by the Goths. Renovations were made as late as 511 CE. Entertainment of some sort lived on in the theatre until then, but in another 50 years or so the population of Rome had greatly reduced and there was no need for such a large theatre. Once unused and abandoned, the site was plundered for usable stone during the Middle Ages. And now, only the line of the curve of the building is still visible in the shape of the modern buildings on the site. Some of the original foundations of the theatre are visible in those buildings, and there's a restaurant built over the ruins where in its lowest level you can eat under the curves of the foundational arches. Next time I'm in Rome, I'm making a stop there. Whether you agree or disagree with my assessments, I hope that this list has served as a reminder for some of the main aspects of the theatre in Rome. It was, for many centuries, an important part of Roman cultural life, but it did come to an end. The decline of theatre in Rome was as slow and drawn out as the end of the empire itself. The splitting of the empire into two parts, western and eastern, was formalised in 427 CE, but had been happening slowly over many years prior to that, as the focus of the empire moved eastward. That split certainly played its part, but theatre was in decline even before then. As the Latin western half slowly declined in power and influence, the eastern part became centred on Byzantium, and primarily Greek-speaking. Mime and pantomime and revivals of Roman and Greek plays continued, but tastes in the east were changing. Spectacle became the order of the day, and crowds preferred staged sea battles and aquatic games to plays. 
Mimes played their part in these lavish events that often involved the redesign of theatres so that a waterproof tank took the place of the stage in the orchestra. As early as the late 1st century CE, the poet Marcus Valerius Marshall, a friend of Seneca's, described the dance of the mime playing Leander. This involved Leander swimming in the pool that represented the Hellespont in order to save Hero, until lost in the dark, he perishes in the water. The portrayal was so good that the audience were convinced that the actor had truly drowned. But it was the rise of Christianity that accelerated the end of the theatre, thanks to a clash with a new morality. As the movement grew and steadily became more influential, its adherents railed against the low morals and lascivious displays of the actors, who in turn poked fun and derided the fanatics and their self-sacrificing ways. It was a clash not just of loose versus strict morals, but wealth versus poverty and exuberance versus restraint. Pantomime ridiculed the crucifixion, the baptism ceremony and other tenets of Christianity. However, there are records of some performers taking up the new radical religion, perhaps most notably a performer called Genesius, who was martyred during one of the early purges of the growing Christian cult and became the patron saint of actors. Critics of the theatre were many, but none more vocal than Tertullian, a church father who lived from about 160 to about 230 CE. He included performers in his vision of the Day of Judgment, which, along all sorts of wrongdoers, included the suffering of actors now more vocal than they have ever been before as they partake in their own tragedy, and players dancing more vigorously than ever seen before as they are consumed by fire. When Emperor Constantine had a vision before battle in 312 CE, he was convinced to throw his lot in with the Christians and made their church official. However true his conversion was, or otherwise, the Christian bishops gained power and influence. They had not forgotten the less-than-respectful attitude to Christianity displayed in theatrical activity, and it was slowly and effectively curtailed under their influence. By the 5th century CE, theatre had been thoroughly prescribed and no good Christian would be seen at the theatre and certainly not performing on stage. In the 6th century CE, theatres were closed. Anything portable was quickly reused or destroyed and in time even the fabric of buildings was taken apart. Fine marble and sturdy stonework was carried off to be used in medieval castles, churches, houses and as road paving. What was left crumbled was abused by successive invasions and battles, misused as armories, fodder sheds, even homes for the dispossessed. But even though it was homeless, the spark of theatre lived on. The actors, who had to live a life on the edge of society for hundreds of years, were largely denied entry into the Christian community and became more or less outcasts. But the desire to perform, entertain, to tell the truth and show mankind to himself didn't die. It flickered but eventually grew as a new flame that built on the memory and then the rediscovery of antiquity. But that is a story for another day. A sad end to some fine traditions and cultural expressions. Rome may not have produced the greatest ever dramatic art, but at its best it took the legacy from the Greeks and created forms of theatre that entertained and spoke seriously to its audience. When I started this journey through Roman theatre, I thought of it as the poor relation to sport, games and religion. I've changed that view now, and I see it as an equal to all of these. We may lack many of the records we would like, but I think we know enough to say that the Theatre of Rome was an integral part of life there, enjoyed by a large part of the population and used by the rulers, the rich and the powerful and the intellectual elite to promote their view of what it was to be a citizen of Rome. 
Next time, as a finale to the season of the Theatre of Rome, I have something slightly different. Way back in episode 3 of the podcast, I produced an episode called The Place of Seeing, where I imagined what the experience of going to the Theatre of Dionysus in ancient Athens might have been like. It's proved to be one of the most popular episodes that I've released, which I'm very pleased about, because it was also one of the most enjoyable to write. So as a way to further sum up the Theatre of Rome, next time I'm going to do something similar, and we'll be imagining the Roman theatre experience. Or I should say, the Roman theatre experiences. I look forward to your company next time. If you haven't found my guest episode on the History of England podcast about Christopher Marlowe, please do drop over there and have a listen. There's been a lot of positive reaction to the way I told the story of Marlowe's life and death, so I can say with some confidence now that it's well worth a listen. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com or go to ko-fi.com and leave me a tip just to say thanks. If you have a spare moment, please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us. As we near the end of season two, it would be great to have some more reviews up there. Any and all support helps offset the costs of the podcast, so it's gratefully received. Thank you so much for your support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.